when an organization is clear about their values and it's kind of yeah. set right from the top, there's a greater clarity there. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits. Thanks for coming on another journey with us today as we unpack some cool ideas. As always, we're going to go deep. And today we're talking about the concept and the idea of values, right? So I say it's an idea because we all talk about it. You know, it's something that, you know, most corporates are concerned with individuals are concerned with and we all assume that we know our values and that they're so easily accessible but i think if we are all honest with ourselves we would admit that it is a complex subject you know what are values where do we hold these values how do we find out what we value is there a hierarchy of values do values change you know people talk about being congruent with values living through our values and we make an assumption that the individual or an organization really understands what their values are so today we have mandeep rai on the show mandeep is the author of the values compass she is an expert, a global expert, a leading authority on the subject of values. Now, Mandeep originally started off as a journalist, a broadcast journalist, and she takes us on a journey across 101 countries in her book, highlighting a single unique value that has defined each nation's history, culture, and global influence and how we can apply them to our own lives to make decisions more effectively. It's super cool, right? Unpacking different countries, different cultures, and what they value and how do we then take that and apply it to our own lives. And I think with such a big data sample and such a variance of what people value, it really allows you and I the opportunity to become quite introspective around those values and the application in our own life. So Mandeep and I talk about, you know, how do we actually find out what our values are? What do we do once we do find out what our values are? We talk about organizational values. And today, hopefully after this conversation, you'll be a little bit more informed on how you can go about really understanding what it means to you. Anyways, folks, I am going to leave you in the capable hands of Mandeep. But before I do, I want to read something Dalai Lama wrote about her book. He says, the values compass takes us into the hearts, minds, and traditions of the cultures and the people of, of the world, demonstrates how interconnected we are and how the divisions that exist between us stem from acting with narrow self-interest rather than the concern for the good of our human family. I hope that the book will contribute to making our world a happier place. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. Enjoy. Mandeep, welcome to Ultra Habits. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, it's about 9 p.m. here in Melbourne, and I'm actually in my kitchen. I, I very rarely do any recordings from the house and when I do it's in the bungalow but the bungalow has had um, some pretty bad internet so I'm actually in my kitchen so uh, I had to put the kids in the far side of the house so they wouldn't scream and run in here and knock stuff over but uh, yeah I think we're good to go. I like that you've got a good setup as in you've got ultra habits behind you even in the kitchen. I'm gonna open this up Uh, you know I've been familiar with your work and it was you know, quite weird. And, and, you know, the story, my aunt, uh, she's in the Silicon Valley. You were visiting the U.S. and you were in, I think, in San Jose. And she told me, she goes, have you heard of Mandeep? And I was like, yeah, yeah, completely 
came across your work and I was actually thinking about getting you on the show. And like most of the guests that I get on the show, there's always an element of something selfish, right? Like there's always something that I really um, am into, obviously. And one of the things that, um, you know, I've been thinking about lately is I'm currently, I'm not working in the conventional sense. I exited a business that I was a shareholder in and I'm on a non-compete for a while. And I've been working with founders kind of on short-term contracts and companies that need support to grow their business, right? And, you know, I've become increasingly frustrated going into other people's businesses because I feel like the challenge to shift the culture, the ways of operating, the heart and soul of the company is challenging. And I've been thinking, well, maybe I should just do my own company. I like where I can start from scratch. And I think at the heart of that, I guess, dilemma is that I'm struggling with values, right? Values of these organizations that I'm going into. And I'm trying to understand, is it possible to kind of shift that infrastructure? And if so, how? Yeah. So, okay, let's let's, uh, backtrack a second. So firstly, I want to say it's really nice joining you. I know it's your evening, but it's really nice kind of I feel as though you're zooming me into Melbourne. Um, And because that's almost where I started this journey um, in the sense that for the University of Melbourne, um, living on Swanson Street and also all the people I still, so many of the people that I still interact with have come from that period of life. I'm just grateful to you to, uh, you know, zoom me into that world again. I haven't actually had a chance to visit Australia since the book has been out, but somehow, um, and I'm not quite sure how well, I, how, but I think maybe Tony Wheeler from uh, The Lonely Planet has something to do with this because he endorsed the book and is based in, in Australia. And also maybe, I don't know, maybe, I don't know exactly why or how, and I need to find out, but the book has done really well in Australia, for which I'm really grateful. And so my intention is definitely to physically come out again. I was actually just an hour away. I was in East Timor last week, and it's just an hour away from Darwin. But I understand that your weather patterns in Australia have completely gone awire, and it was like floods, whereas in East Timor, it was like idyllic sunshine. Mm. Um, so I'm just very uh, I'm just very grateful. So thank mm-hmm. you. I want to start there. And thank you to your aunt for mentioning me, mm. and it's great that you had already come across my work even before she had mentioned me. Um, so to your point about uh, working for yourself and um, the values that go with that and the values that are in corporations, et cetera. Well, I've just been, um, I've been doing a deep dive with the London School of Economics on kind of the future of work. And we just completed a, um, a future summit. And I was on a panel with one member from the Art of Living. And in fact, I'll be working with the Art Art of Living going further in Turin next weekend. And the reason I mention this is because we were talking about the dichotomy or the the, almost the trade-off that one does when they're stepping out into work either as a freelancer or a contractor or setting up their own business or for themselves vis-a-vis in a corporation. And although part of you might be looking at the values of the corporate world that you're stepping out of and whether you fit and don't fit. Another part of you is also thinking about the trade-off between stability and autonomy. It's a little bit more than freedom that you're getting by stepping out by yourself. You're getting this sense of, okay, I'm the, I'm the master of my own time. I'm, the, I'm my own agent, my own boss. You know, this goes how I want it to go. But there's also a sense of giving up a little bit of stability. Now, I say little bit because I think increasingly we're beginning to realize that corporations don't necessarily give us as much stability as we perhaps thought they did. For example, no corporate in the world would have kind of shielded you from the impact of the pandemic. No corporate in the world is shielding you from the impact of Ukraine and Russia. No corporate in the world will impact you from the, from the effect that climate change will have on your life. So our sense of, wow, if I have a job for life or if I stay with this company, 
you know, I'll be able to put my, I'll be able to have this kind of stable, steady life or put my kids through college where I won't be able to put my kids through college if I step out is no longer the case. Um, but yes, it is absolutely the case that when you're looking at do your values marry or match or gel with the organization that you're working with, that is fundamentally important and more important because we have agency. We have the freedom or choice to be able to think, well, I can change my life right now. We're stepping out of the pandemic. We're able to think about where do I really want to live? Like you've just moved to Melbourne. Where do I really want my children to go to school? You just mentioned your children. Where would, where would I be able to create a life that's really going to gel with what matters to me? And after the pandemic, we have kind of this unique opportunity where everything's being shaken up anyway. You might as well just create. Mm. And I've met so many people who not only did they do a soul search during the pandemic, but they actually drastically changed their lives anyway, according to, you know, the, it's like the dice was thrown. And they're actively choosing which face of the dice do I want to now have landed on and to build my life upon. Yeah, I think personally for me, I've always um, gone into people's businesses um, and worked with the founders to help them scale their businesses. And I think what I've come to realize over time is that financially that's good and that's okay. But I think where I'm at in my life, I'd much rather be involved with creating something where I'm having an impact on the culture, the lives, the ways of operating on a really deep level beyond the financial kind of incentives of um, when I was younger, I would operate more as a mercenary. And I think, I think that's shifting for me. And, and I think it's a value-driven piece. I'm, I'm certain of it. Uh, there was a comment that I came across, and it was a pretty profound statement. It said, values define the ambitions we set and the relationships we choose. What would your comment be to that statement? Okay, so firstly, the way you led me into this statement was that you were talking about, really in a roundabout way, you were talking about what's going to be fulfilling to you, that perhaps mm. it used to be building a monetary base, and now... What I hear and what I know is the case, actually, is that what's fulfilling to us are a combination of self-expression, connection, and contribution. And those three are fundamental values to building a more successful, fulfilling, happy life. So our research has shown that if you're able to build a a world and you're really able to contribute, from a base of having self-expressed your creativity or what's really meaningful to you, and you're able to be in a community, as in connection. Like, we could eat our lunch on creating businesses that develop, create community, because more and more as people gain more autonomy and they're doing things independently, loneliness is a real thing. In fact, there's um, a startup that's just launched in Australia. It's called Hoogly. And... Uh, Hoogly is this kind of Scandinavian word about kind of feeling well, feeling cared for, feeling safe and secure, and but really well, like feeling completely nourished and like your cup is full. Um, and although Hoogly is spelt in a different way, this company has spelt it as H-O-O-G-L-Y. So just mm-hmm. phonetically, just as you mm-hmm. hear it, Hoogly. And what they found is that one of the biggest things that individuals are, what, what really destabilizes them in terms of their well-being is the sense of loneliness. You can be lonely in a huge city like London or, or Delhi or Melbourne, but you can also be lonely in a marriage. You can also be lonely in an organization, in a company that you're working for. You can only also be lonely in a startup right at the top. In fact, the more the higher you go and the more niched and nuanced your specialization become, the more lonely it is. Um, but also our lifestyle and the way we have created our lives. We go to the gym or we work out as individuals when we want to. We consume entertainment when we want to. We, You know, nothing less and less is being done as groups or in community. So even if you look at the digital nomads, 
yes, they have the freedom to be able to work anywhere in the world. But what did I see last week when I was in Indonesia, actually on the island of Bali, that these digital nomads all congregated in this one beach called Kang, you know, Changu, that there's a sense of wish and will to still want community. And I think the startups and the, uh, the businesses of tomorrow will eat their lunch on creating this sense of community. So to your point about that phrase, the um, statement that you said, I wholeheartedly agree with it. And I hope that what I just said before will mm. explain why. What's your view then on the move towards fragmented workplaces? Like, I have my opinion about it, um, but what, what's your view? Like, are you an advocate of a decentralized workforce when, it, when, you, when you overlay the desire to build a, a value-driven culture? Like, do they oppose each other? Can they support each other? What's, what's your view on that? I am working a lot with companies who are pained with the struggle of how do we bring our community back? Huge companies like Google and Amazon, et cetera, want to make sure that they are interconnected with their workforce, that, they, that their workforce is still a team, is still accessible and working, working together and working parallel. So when, that, when people are talking about hybrid working or more or more fragmented working or working from home, et cetera, et cetera, there are certain companies who are like, wait a minute, that is not going to work for us. We need you back. And we need you back at least three days a week so that we don't lose you by saying five days a week, but we need you back as much as we can. And there are other companies that are really struggling to fulfilling your desire to have, to work from wherever you want to work from in whatever situation. And yet they can't access you. Like people aren't answering their work mobile phones. People aren't necessarily answering their email when they expect their email mm-hmm. to be answered. And so there's this sense of what do we want as employees and what does the employer actually benefit from or want? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's going to take some adjustment. Right now, you know, we are there are countries that are experimenting with the four-day week. And actually, it's proving to be very successful that we can do our work within four days and our sense of well-being and happiness is increased by only working four days. So therefore, why are we stretching this out over five days and depleting our people? Um, I think it's going to be a little bit of an ebb and flow as we find the right way in the right culture because each and every place, as I show through my book, I'm just going to do a shameless kind of pick it up and show you the values compass. Um, in this, I show you um, how, in fact, I can show you through the contents, how each and every country has like a different value system. And so thinking that uh, we mentioned the Philippines earlier before we got on, mm-hmm. before we came, uh, before we started press record, you know, to think that there's the same kind of working culture in the Philippines as there is in, let's say, mm-hmm. Kenya, would be a little naive there's a different working culture so let's be aware mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. would work in the locality that you're in yeah that's a, a great example actually so when i started working with the philippines particularly through covid i came to realize just how difficult life is and how difficult it can be like at first i thought you know the typhoons the covid deaths the you know uh, one of the one of the girls that does my editing went AWOL for two days and was back on and didn't tell me she just had a miscarriage. She, you know, she said 12 Hail Marys and went back at it, right? Like, it, you know, like it's just incredible to see the different constructs in different societies, right? Uh, how faith plays into all the disasters that they cope through. Whereas here we'd be like, what? Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Um, and, and, and something that, um, is I guess we um, become more interconnected globally. We want to be, I suppose, aware of. One of the things that we I noticed is someone that was um, running a business, which was interesting during COVID, was some of the team members were falling apart, but some of these team members were the ones that were like, I want to work from home, I want to work from home, and we were sending them to psychologists. As soon as we got them in the office, within a week, the team shifted 
And we started talking about it from a senior leadership perspective. We were like, is this working from home thing just about multitasking? You know, the ability to do different things. To your point earlier, people might not answer the phone. They may not call. But like, what's, what's life like when you're working with your spouse trapped in a little house? you know, five days a week. What does that do your relationship? So we found when we actually brought people back into the office, the culture rebounded massively. And we were, we were able to consolidate the crew. And I suppose what the staff wanted wasn't necessarily what they needed. So that, that was, that was interesting. I'll, I'll shift the conversation to how you got into this work. Like, how did you get so interested in values? Like, take us back to that origin story, Mindy. Just to your point about what people want versus what they need, you know, we have seen, for example, that women have really painfully, for example, not just saying just women, but as an example, women have painfully suffered from this whole, oh, why don't you work from home? That'll be better for you. Or why don't I work from home? Because then I'll be able to manage my home life, my children, my whatever, whatever, whatever. Actually, it's created like an invisible underclass almost where those people don't necessarily then get the training that you get or the insider conversations that you might listen at the, uh, at the water, water cooler, cooler. Yeah. Or, the, yeah. or the kind of taxi ride in with your boss mm. or whatever. Um, mm. It makes such a difference. Like 132 years it's been quoted that women have lost potentially by this kind of new culture that we're creating. So many women that I personally know have left the world of work and these aren't. These are ambitious women. These are very well-educated women for whom career was everything. And yet they have decided to actively step out at this point. So there's, there's something to think about in terms of what we think we want and what we actually want and what's working and what's not working. So to your point about the origin story, at the end of this week, I'll be going to the University of Oxford and uh, to talk actually at Christchurch College. And it's one of my favorite colleges because it's where all the Bollywood films are set. It's very pretty. <laughs> They were hesitant in asking me to speak to their students because they said, you know, you got a place here, but you didn't take it. Are you going to tell us that, um, you know, we're a little bit hesitant. Are you going to tell us that we shouldn't be here or we don't need it or, you know, that we're missing a trick or whatever? And I said, no, actually, on the contrary, that was the moment where this all this values work kicked in for me. Why? Because actually it's how the book starts. I get this place when I'm 18. Um, and it's like when we apply for university here, right? You go through the UCAS uh, system. Um, and when I receive straight A's at school, um, the newspapers come into school and they are like photographing or interviewing like the top students. And I didn't ever expect to be one of those students. So I was never, you know, I'm not someone who's like aiming for straight A's all straight. I, I went to a very, very academic school. So there were, I felt like there were plenty of people, you know, ahead, beyond, beyond whatever, whatever, on either side. Um, anyway, when I get this place, my mother, we were living in Gloucestershire. So it's a very academic school in the heart of Gloucestershire, in this super white, and I can say this because we're not white, uh, this super, but I hope that's the right, I don't know what the right terminology is. I'm always politically incorrect. Yeah. So this super, super, like there are no, there, are, there is no one of any colour. There's not a Chinese person, there's mm. not a black person, brown person, anything, anything. And so growing up, like there was severe racism in this tiny little village that I grew up in to the point that when I'm walking to school, I'm tripped up on, by a child, I think I was around eight years old. And there's, and my nose breaks and there's blood everywhere because he trips me up as we're walking. And I get to school and the teachers are like, oh my God, what's happened to you? Because I'm covered with blood. And the boy just mildly says, oh, I just wanted to check whether her blood was brown or black because you know i've never seen anyone with that color so so when i get this place my mother's like oh no now you're going to end up marrying like mm. some white guy called sebastian like to her it was almost like this all these people that had made her life literally hell like we had bars mm. on our window i know it looks like i've got bars on my window now but that's yeah. just actually just the design but mm. you know we literally had you know, mesh and bars on the window because so many times a brick had come through the window and hit my, one time it hit my mother in the head and she was like taken straight to the hospital. It was, again, a very bloody experience. We would have letters come through the letterbox saying, get out, you packies. If you don't, we're going to petrol bomb your house. 
And my parents never, ever were allowed to leave the house as a couple. You know, you might go on a date night or you might just go to a family wedding and you might just want to leave your house and get into the car together and go as a family. We never, ever, ever were able to do that. And there was this one time we actually had a family wedding. It was my mother's brother. There's no way we could not all attend. My mother had to hide in the boots of the car, in the back of the car, like, you know, the boots where mm -hmm. there's no windows mm -hmm. so that the people that we lived around still thought there was someone at home and still the whole place was ransacked when we came back. But why did you stay there? Like, why did you guys, like, so I've got relatives in England and most of the Indians are like packed in South Hall or Hounslow or what, like, how did you guys end up in the middle of nowhere? And why did you guys okay. stay there? We're in this tiny village in the heart of Gloucestershire, et cetera, et cetera. But we had come from, so I was born in Birmingham, which is where mm -hmm. my, um, like all my father's family moved, lived in Birmingham. And we had come in this kind of like build Britain request that was some, you know, as you know, Sikhs are like 90% or were 90% of the Indian military. So during Second World War and straight after, there were many, many Sikhs in Britain, either either with the army, navy, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all literally building Britain because it had been it'd been mm. bombed and there was so much to do. But my grandparents had no intention of staying here. Like for them, India is where the sun shines, India is where their heart beats, India is home. And so but their children were being educated here because they were living here, they were working here, they were having to do things here. So my father, so my, my grandparents had four, four children, four sons, and all the sons were at school here. And when, um, when my father came, my, my father's parents moved back to India when he was just 12, he's the youngest. So they had, you know, the older brothers, mm -hmm. were already married, established, etc. And for my father, he basically lost his parents when he was, when his parents moved back to India. At that point, he was being almost being raised by his older brothers. And when he turned 21, well, he would, he would go back to India as often as he could. And when he turned 21, on one of his trips back to India, he spotted my mother on a bike. And she was just 17, he was 21. And he said to his father, who had by that point, you know, was the Sarpanch, like the mayor of the village, um, had bought a lot of land, had actually moved villages several times because he kept buying more and more land. And he was really well known in the area. And um, he, it was, so his son, my father said to his own father, I'd love to marry a girl like that. And my grandfather, who's like, oh, huh, your wish is my command. Like I run India, you know, of course. <laughs> and so says, you know, of course, that'll be done. Um, so he approaches my um, mother's family and says, you know, my my son has taken a liking to your daughter. Do you, um, is there kind of what's your situation? And my grandmother said, well, actually, it's really convenient that you happen to bring up marriage at this time. Because although my daughter's only 17, we are all emigrating to California. Hence the fact that your aunt, <laughs> hence the fact that I was in Silicon Valley and your aunt uh, mentioned me. So all my mother's family live in California. Um, and, but the, my, my mother's mother, so my grandmother wasn't able to take any dependent, anyone who was not a dependent. So she could take any child. She had th four children as well. And so she could take the three that were under 16, but the fourth and the eldest, who's my mother and was 17, couldn't oh. emigrate with the family. So, so she was like, oh, well, this is great timing, you know, that, mm. you know, my daughter gets married and the rest of us move and it's, it's fine. And so that's what happened. Um, and to my mother, I think when she came to England, I think similar to my grandparents and similar to many people, just as you're feeling in Melbourne, you know, oh, my goodness, the weather's so dreary. What are we doing here? What is this? You know, I've come from a land of mangoes and, and abundance. And here we are in like this quite drab, dreary, grey, factories, smoke, like industrialization you know what is this this is not what i had ever envisaged in fact she was studying mes medicine she had a very different plan for her life um so from the moment i think she arrived uh i wouldn't say she didn't give it a go she gave it a very long go but it wasn't until i was three four years old so you know a good kind of five years into her life in england she was like okay i've had enough please can we try a life somewhere else can we just 
you know, where would somewhere else be? Well, why don't we try it? We need, you know, it's nice to have support or family when you've got a young child. Why don't we try California? And so we moved to California when I was around three. Um, right. And there was a mismatch in values for my parents and for the countries, I think. So my father really valued um, community and time and relationships and people. And so he felt as though he was one being taken out of his own kind of community, et cetera. But much more importantly, he felt that America at that time, or at least compared to what he was experiencing in Britain, didn't necessarily have time. People were working. Where were you in working, California? When the, when um, in Union City. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, so not far from San Jose, where I met mm. your, your aunt. Mm. Um, and so he felt as though his that the family there were working all the time, that there wasn't necessarily a sense of community, that people didn't necessarily, you know, relax in the pub after work or didn't mm. didn't necessarily have that that connection, mm. he felt. And I think increasingly, maybe if you look at American society now, increasingly maybe that's the case. But if you speak to Americans, they thought they had a lot of community compared to what it then became. <laughs> but anyway, the, the point is that he felt as though people didn't have People were living to work rather than working to live. That was his interpretation. So after some months, um, I think six to six to eight months, ten months, he, he was like, that's it. I've had enough. I'm going back to Britain. And so my mother was in this quandary of like, where where can we live that would be, that would, you know, suit his values and needs, suit my values and needs and works as a support system. And she had a small group, a small subset of family, i.e. my mum, my grandmother's sister, her Masi, in Swindon, which is also very white and very, um, you know, Wiltshire. It's not exactly South or it's still very, um, but it was too, it's like um, a fair distance from Birmingham. So they basically drew a line as in your family's in Birmingham, my family's in Wiltshire. Why don't we move to Gloucestershire, which is in the middle, still in England and why don't we meet kind of the objectives and the values and the needs in that way? And hence we ended up in Gloucestershire. Wow. Okay. And so you get there and I guess you're now committed and, and your parents are like, this is where we're going to be. And you get involved in the education system. You obviously excel. Uh, I would imagine you're kind of academically gifted and inclined. And, yeah. and so how did you ultimately find your way into values? I mean, it's a, it's an abstract, thing no one really says i mean imagine for you the pathway would have been medicine something more traditional like you know like you you tell your parents as an indian kid i'm going to get into values they're like what <laughs> so i went to a uh here there are like independent schools schools that yeah. you pay for state schools and then grammar schools schools that you have you yeah. have to i guess to your point of being academic have to you know pass a certain entrance threshold and then you get mm -hmm. in and it's and those schools they teach, I think, independent thinking, critical thinking, and already have you already instill a confidence in you because you know that you've only got in because not because your parents are paying for it, and that only like the top time top you know creme de la creme they used to say to us have, could ever get into here. So um, I think that really helped in terms of building my free thinking. Um, it was a girls' school. I never felt like I had to please, you know, the boy mm -hmm. sitting next to me or I know mm -hmm. there was like this sense of kind of um, we're going to forge our way forward. And so when I went to study university, I chose deliberately politics, economics, philosophy, PPE. And it's a program. It's a program at Oxford, but it's a program that our current prime minister also studied that. In fact, most of our prime ministers have come from that program. And it's basically a program that helps you understand why the world is the way it is, economically, politically, uh, uh, philosophically, but also in terms of the nuances between nations and peoples and relations. So I guess my I was already thinking, why are we in the structures that we are? I could have been a, a, any you know any one of those village children in India. Like, why is it that I? And in this context, how has that happened? What privilege does that give me? What can I do with that? What's the biggest positive impact I can make? Um, so that's the attitude with which I went to university. And it was also, to be really frank, from one uh, Asian to another, I was also like 
very aware that I had a tiny window of freedom before my parents would have me married because it was very clear that they had decided uh, that, you know, that I should be, that there would be an age and I, they would start introducing me to people and blah, 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 it happened. You know, that's how, that's how life worked. Um, and so I felt as though I had to learn as much as possible before that day and do as much as possible before I would call it the day of death. They would call it the day of celebration, whatever. Uh, slight different interpretation, but yeah. Um, and so in this kind of pursuit of trying to learn as much as possible, but also, uh, yeah, I guess as soon as I, as soon as I started university, I applied for a scholarship um, to study. Okay, I'm going to just wind back time. It's now like 1990. I started university in 1997. I'm giving my age away completely. Mm -hmm. And in 1998, um, the this financial crisis in Asia had started to happen. So like the Asian countries were unraveling. And the best place to study literally PPE live was Melbourne because they were the closest to the Suharto regime in Indonesia or the closest to, they were the closest, they, the experts studying these economies were sitting in Melbourne. So if you were going to, if there's anywhere in the world you actually wanted to study those subjects, I thought it was Melbourne. And I uh, luckily won a full paid scholarship to study in Melbourne. And so I called my mother and what well, my parents, but my father's always relaxed. So I always talk about my mother because, yeah. so my, I called my mother a day before leaving for Melbourne and said, oh, and I did it deliberately a day before because she's less likely to be able to stop me, right? If I give mm -hmm. her too much advance notice, the same thing could happen as it happened at Oxford. So this time I was a little bit more skilled at it. And I said, oh, mum, I have a full paid scholarship. There's nothing you have to do, nothing you have to think about. Um, and thankfully for me, luckily, my grandmother, the grandmother, I, the Californian grandmother I told you about, my mother's mother was visiting. And so my mother was about to freak out and be like, what, you're going to the other side of the world? I, you know, what is, but my grandmother stepped in and said, look, wherever she is meant to, in Punjabi, the phrase is, wherever she is meant, wherever her destiny is written, it's written. You can't keep on stopping it or intervening it. You know, you can, you can try as many times as you want, but it's going to keep on coming up. Um, so, there was something about the fact that I had listened to my mother when she talked, when she asked me to not take a place. And now her own mother is saying, let her go. So she has to listen to her own mother, right? A little bit. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to teach mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. parental respect, then it needs to happen in all generations. Um, so I was really lucky that uh, my grandmother said, you should, you should absolutely go for this. It's, it's written. When I went to Australia to answer your question, how am I in the world of values? I basically, not only did I study PPE live, but also mm -hmm. I traveled all the countries almost in between. So this is my one window of opportunity from, you know, Australia back to England to see as much of the world as I could, um, knowing that in a, in a year or two, I'd be graduating from university and that day of death was going to come. So I think all those things, like the fact that my life was being compressed into a short window of time, had it such that for me, decision making was really important. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had the freedom to get it wrong too many times, because I only have a short window of living in the first place. And so, every time I was making a decision, where do I work? Um, what do I do next? Any of those were really heavily weighted. And from that moment that my mother said no to Oxford, I really learned what values were. She had wanted me to. Both of us had wanted the best kind of start or the best opportunity possible for me, right? My mother also mm -hmm. wants my mm -hmm. happiness. No parent doesn't want their child's happiness. But for my mother, her value system or her thinking that I would receive happiness from stability, security, a good, happy, strong family life. And I guess my mm -hmm. definition of happiness were the values of freedom and learning and growth. And so although mm -hmm. we both wanted the same outcome, our value system, was different. And me not being able to understand really what her value system was and not being able to argue utilizing her value system was a shortcoming on my part. And I never wanted to make that mistake again. From that day on, I wanted to make sure that I understood what 
nourished me and what were my mm-hmm. values, but also that I understood what the other person's values were. Because if I don't, then it's just we've got two separately held beliefs mm-hmm. rather than understanding one another's values and building the bridge and being able to meet both of our sets of values and having an outcome that both are okay with. Because there's so many times in life where you might think, um, you know, your boss kind of is saying no to something, for example. And it's not really about how much that development course costs. It's more about the time it will take up. You just need to know what is the obstacle? What value here is being stepped on? And how can I make sure that I deal with that rather than just receiving a no, no, you can't do this, or no, that's not possible, or no, we, you know. So I think from that moment, every time I made a decision that was taking me away from my values, I would course correct. But really, the whole kind of uh, framework or the understanding of values didn't come about until I started my MBA, um, most of which was, was completed at Harvard Business School. And at Harvard, I met two, well, one per- professor particularly, but I worked with two or three professors. Two, one of them was Nitin Noria who then became off the work of our, off the back of our work on values, became the Dean of Harvard Business School and um, was really known for kind of the values that he held, but also this um, system we created, which was called an oath. Like you take an oath, like you espouse certain values, like you would in your, to your point, medicine or law, um, you stand for something much greater than yourself. So we wanted to have that in any profession, including business. And the other professor was uh, Professor Rakesh Karana, who now is the Dean of Harvard University. And, um, and with them, we built this values-based work, which we then took to the World Economic Forum, and it was called the Global Business Oath. And then we started working with organizations. So on one level, we're working with students, and on the other level, we're working with C-suite and the heads of companies. And the more I did, the more I worked in this, the more I studied and worked in this world of values, the more I became to, you know, those aha moments happened so that I was able to, I wanted, okay, by that point, by the time I'd reached Harvard, I'd already traveled over a hundred countries. And I could see that everywhere that I had been, everywhere that I traveled had a slightly different value system. And that became more apparent to me because whenever I would report for the BBC, I'd send out a report about, you know, there would be a story on the World Service about the ban of plastic in Ladakh, in Leh, Ladakh, like in Tibet or near Tibet. Um, But I would then write a personal email to my friends and family about what was really special about this part of the world. What really makes Japan a place that you should visit or a place that we could learn from? And I would receive feedback from those emails from random people because people would forward those emails on to other people other people other people and then people would write back and say this should be a book and I always used to think oh yeah yeah when I you know when I retire I I promise Mm -hmm. to get there you know I'll get right into it Mm -hmm. and um I remember one of my BBC colleagues was like why are you waiting till you're dead (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it was actually when I was pregnant with my first child uh I thought well he framed it beautifully. His name's Andy Taylor. And he was actually the best man at my wedding. Uh, I actually came to Melbourne with him. That's how we met. We met in the visa queue where we were applying for Melbourne. Um, and he's one of my closest friends. And he said, why not create a, write a book, this book that everyone's asking for, something like Letters to Your Unborn Child. And that really caught my imagination. And it took 10 years and slowly, slowly, slowly through different iterations became the Values Compass which is basically a journey around the world, showing you different values from different places, but much more importantly, helping you uncover your own value system and helping you identify your top five values and more importantly, helping you to prioritize your top five values so that you become clear what's most important to you. And when that top value becomes a habit or an ultra habit, you can then knock it out of the value list because it's a habit. You don't need to keep on thinking about it. You don't need to keep on prioritizing it. And as your values become habits, you then can reshuffle and put on a different kind of get a different list, priority list. And slowly, slowly, over the course of your life, you'll find actually over the course of a year, even you'll find an incremental 1%, 1%, 1% improvement every single day. And you're living your values and it becomes kind of like, 
natural second nature. There's a lot in that. So in terms of how someone gets to their values, I mean, it can be quite an abstract process when I think, what are my values? I, I, I really don't know. Like how difficult or easy is it for people to really understand what their values are and what are the, some of the things they can do to figure that out? Great question. This is exactly like, actually, it doesn't take that long or that much. I mean, it's exactly what the book walks you through. The book is like a tool, you know, it's a compass. It's a tool that helps you identify them and um, prioritize them. So even if you just looked at the contents of the book, even if you just looked at those values words, there are 101, actually there are 102, there's a bonus chapter. But even that... If you, as you, you don't have to read the entire book. If you just read the introduction and conclusion and looked at the contents and you started to circle the words, the values that resonate with you and put a cross through the values that don't. Very quickly, you would find that that list of 100 becomes a list of like 20, maybe 18, maybe 15. So already you're closer to your top five. Then you'd find that there are some values that are overlapping and I have a few tri- ticks, tricks and techniques mm. on how to, uh, how to uh, decipher and create distinctions between what is, what is the value that really matters to you? Is it freedom or is it autonomy? You know, you've circled both. Both are important. There's a slight difference. Um, or it might be, for you, it might be recognition or contribution or excellence. But we can get to a place quite quickly to decipher what it is behind, because often you are circling two or three values, but there's an underlying value that matters. And the two or three are just the values that are byproducts of that first value that matters. You you talked about, I heard you in an interview, you said that the the kind of GFC really influenced your, your work, or I guess your perspective on values, the fallout, the corruption, what happened during that period? Like, did, did, is that is that a correct um, understanding on my behalf that that was a real kind of instrumental period of time for you in terms of shaping your work? Even during that that first period, you know, when I mentioned the Asian financial crisis, mm-hmm. even there you could see this. Um, but yeah, during the global financial crisis, I mean, look, there have been so many. Uh, the economy is cyclical, so that every time we're going into a depression or into a difficult time, like 2009, 2010, when I was graduating from Harvard was one of those times. And um, I would say business people had a reputation synonymous to used car salesmen, frankly, like Mm. we were, a a business grad was seen as, well, why did you study business in the first place? Look at where Mm. you've got us, you know, subprime mortgages and, Mm. you know, where are we in the world? And it's because of people like you. In fact, we almost had this, we definitely had a class, uh, I'd even say a program, where we dealt with, like, how do you stay out of prison? How is it that we, um, that with people like Enron, I mean, so many of the Harvard graduates were now running these organizations. When you are in your career, you start off really knowing what you want to contribute. And then you'll make compromises, possibly, right, as your employee employer will ask for certain things or as I know I've been in this this predicament um you know I've worked for investment banks like my first job was with JP Morgan um I've set up venture capital funds um like one in the Middle East uh in the UAE uh, in Abu Dhabi specifically it was called 2454 which are the coordinates of Abu Dhabi but we're covering the whole of the MENA region um and in all of those, I've had many jobs in life. And in all of those situations, you might think your boss is your immediate boss, but actually you begin to realize it's the stakeholders, it's the shareholders, it's the sheikh, it's whomever. And all of those kind of, as you're managing up, you're really managing up to different value systems. And if they're not aligned with your own value system, and I think this comes to back to the very first question that you asked me about, you know, when you're in a corporate structure or when you're in a structure, how can you get closer to us? Firstly, does it even align with your value system? And secondly, how can you get closer to one that does? So when you become 
when if you do this simple work 15 20 minutes now it will save you time pain <laughs> money miss uh like kind of slightly difficult slightly poor decision making it will save you all of that because you'll become clear about what actually is motivating you what's important to you and what your values are equally as organizations become clear about what their values are you're able to build a match and you will gravitate towards organizations that fit your value system and organizations will hire according to their value system do you think that organizations should set the tone on their values or they should engage the people to determine the values like your view on what you feel is the the best path cultures are based on values and culture is the tone of your organization so, so even if you think values don't matter i'm pretty sure your corporate culture does matter so there's not really a firm or an institution or an organization or a group to whom culture doesn't matter we're always creating culture we have a lingua franca of our consultancy companies startups are trying to create a specific culture for their specific startup but huge multinationals are creating a particular type of culture so we're we're beings just like i said you can eat your lunch in the future of making community we are beings who are creating communities and cultures in my experience the um you know i've been part of a lot of firms that have tried to engage the staff to understand the different values and then try to align their leadership style and leadership ethos to serve the values of the people. I may be cynic, but I don't feel that works. Like for me, having an organization that sets a strong culture and value system based on the founders, the leaders, the people that have started the organization and yelling that from the top of the roof and then attracting the people that align with those values for me in my experience works better because i think that you're it's far easier for an organization to attract like-minded people than in the infrastructure of an organization to change based on the people and the polling process and you know that that's just been my view and i suppose my experience in 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 the past same thing right you're saying mm-hmm. that for you you're finding that when, a, when an organization is clear about their values and it's kind of yeah. set right from the top there's a greater clarity there we're saying the same thing we'll start to land the plane here but there's piece on self deception and hypocrisy like people think a lot of the times that they have certain values but operate differently to those values they think they have you know i've had lots of um experiences where i've been in organizations and i've had to work with uh, the founders or or people that tell you one thing when they want you to come into the business to help them drive change but the reality is as soon as you put the mirror up you know they kind of move back into their um i suppose their real self and 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 operate from that place of who they truly are you know when you go into an organization or if you're working with an organization that says the you know we values are important for us blah 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 and then month 2 month 3 month 4 you're in there and you're realizing like the very people that have engaged you may be the biggest issue have you ever come across a situation like that and if so what could what could you do like what can what can a person do in that situation so aren't we all human beings i'm sure we've all come across situations like that <laughs> like humans are constantly deceiving themselves and others and i don't mm-hmm. think that there's a bit to your point is where we started this conversation about the masks right and we just jumped straight into it we are all deceiving ourselves at certain points i don't think anyone's deliberately necessarily doing it or perhaps mm-hmm. you are deliberately doing it but uh we are lying to ourselves even while you're doing the exercise that i've asked you know that i talk about in the book I deliberately say please don't do this by yourself please double triple quadruple check it with um do it in different contexts do it with someone that you know well at work but do it also with someone that you know well in your personal life someone who really knows you someone do it with your best friend because 
Your values, one, need to be consistent, but much more importantly, you are lying to yourself so often. So often we are saying to ourselves, oh, family really matters to me, for example. But you don't spend your, you know, your, your day, the way you spend your time doesn't necessarily, would not necessarily show that or indicate that, would in fact suggest the exact opposite. So equally in the world of work, we might say things like, oh, diversity, equality, inclusion, of course, DEI really matters to me. And yet, you know, when you get a chance to hire the next person or when you have a chance of uh, housing a Ukrainian refugee vis-a-vis an Afghani refugee, you subconsciously get, you know, veer towards the Ukrainian refugee. I'm not saying there's anything right or wrong. I'm just saying that we have subtle, nuanced biases within ourselves. And without us realizing it, we, we are operated by those biases. And it takes a lot a lot to um, have that veil lifted from our eyes again and again and again and again to for someone to say you say this but you do this um, and so what you're describing in an organization we are culprits of that and everyone around us are culprits of that all of us wearing different masks in different situations not really uh, even even being contradictory within ourselves to ourselves and then to others it's natural and normal. And I think that the more we become really clear that let's say in this domain of our life, in this circle, in this group, let's say the organization, because that's what we're talking about right now, in this organization, these are the values that we're going to espouse. And if we all commonly have decided that, whether it's by asking all the employees, which we do, which we do with huge organizations and small organizations, or whether it's coming from the top, there's some kind of consensus by which you can then be held account, mm. you know, be held account by and to, and that's the same. And and I think that gives it a level of rigor and structure that mm. is important, so that you know where you stand and you can say, well, excuse me, company X, you had said this was important yeah. to you. I think everyone has to be accountable. You know, there can be no sacred cows, right? As we we get to the end of the interview, I want to thank you, Lindy, for your time. I mean, we've tried to connect. I think you were traveling the globe and we finally, we finally here. One of the things that we ask our guests is, you know, habit oriented question. So I have now gone into the book, into your book. I've read your book and I've now unpacked my five key values. How do I start to habituate those values like into my life? Like how do I start to operate more congruently with what those values are? Well, to your headline of ultra habits, once you, let's say your number one value is health, for example. And I think it might it might be quite important to you because we were speaking about uh, keeping fit before we got onto this. Just just on that, my number one value is commitment. Oh, commitment, really? Mm, yeah. Ah, interesting. We'll have to unpack that and see where yeah. it came from and where you want it to go. Um, all right, let's say, let's say it's commitment. You're going to see that commitment to not let other people's lack of commitment trigger you and to create a resolve around your own commitment, right? Mm -hmm. So when commitment becomes like a second nature, like a habit to you so that you don't even have to focus on it and it becomes an ultra habit, you know how it is when you've, you know, when you've Mm -hmm. built habits around it, then one, you probably in doing that, already articulated it to all the important people in your life. You just articulated it very firmly to me, and I'm sure you should and would do it to the people that are important to you. You don't have to keep on reinforcing it. They know. And then, and then you don't have to keep on emphasizing it. It's there. It's inbuilt. It's an ultra habit. Done. Yeah. Yeah. You can then move. Yeah. It's then kind of evolving into the next, into the next, yeah. into the next. Yeah, and also that value of commitment has come from a level of uh, um, nature and nurture, and we can unpack that too, mm. and to see whether indeed that is the value or, or where is it coming from. I think it's the second podcast or another. another yeah, that, it, it'll be part two. <laughs> where where do our audience find you? I'm on every single platform. Uh, I think pretty much LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Instagram and thanks to my children now TikTok. I'm not quite sure why we're doing that, but they tell me it's important. But LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to mm. really get a message to me. And you can find the book. You should be able to find the book 
everywhere and anywhere. Like it's, you know, I recommend your local independent bookstore, but anywhere it's possible. Uh, obviously, Amazon is always there. And I, I we, there's also the audio version, the e-version. And if there's something that you think I should be doing that could be valuable, um, whether it's in your organization or uh, a talk or a conference, whatever, however I can serve, please let me know. Thank you so much, Mandy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for this conversation.